I see a light reflection, refraction Is it nothing more than a chemical reaction? It flickers and grows, nobody knows How much we feel, how quickly it goes Turn off the dark and vanquish the night Show the whole world for eight days at twilight Then and now, they fought and we fight Fight for the right to live by our own light Let me see the light Give me something to live by Let me see the light I need something to live by Welcome to What We Will Abide. I'm Sam Schindler. While I generally tell stories of those who are doing work right here in Lancaster, occasionally it's good to branch out. This episode of What We Will Abide was recorded in the Hyde Park neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. This is important because the neighborhood itself is a character in this story. The story is about Aryeh Bernstein, a teacher, a seeker of social justice, and a Jew. A few weeks ago, I took part in a panel discussion about religion and war, along with representatives of four other religions. Afterwards, someone mentioned to me that when used that way, the term Jew sounds aggressive, harsh, and accusatory. While I grant the merit of that sentiment, its origins set in European anti-Semitism, I'm not bothered by it. And I doubt Aryeh is either. He's a guy who wears his Judaism on his sleeve and under his shirt. He wears a talit katan, or tzitzit, fringes that hang from a traditional garment he wears beneath his outer clothing. It's one of several of his daily reminders to engage in self-reflection, to recall his heritage, and to be aware that there's something out there that's bigger than him. Aryeh and I are the same age, and though we grew up in different cities, he in Chicago and I outside New York, We happen to have a number of people and institutions in common. This is not abnormal in the Jewish world. We first met about 30 years ago, but had little contact then, and would have had no reason to remain connected. But back in December of last year, I was visiting my family in Chicago, at my nephew's bar mitzvah, in fact, when I recognized a familiar face in the synagogue. Again, when you grow up Jewish, seeing a face that you think you know, especially in the synagogue, is no great surprise. Still, I couldn't place him. Towards the end of the service, he approached me, and the mystery was quickly resolved. As we touch on in the course of our conversation, while my status as a practitioner of Judaism faded over a decade ago, Aryeh's life and career are steeped in it. It seems we found our way to many of the same foundational elements of our similar worldviews, but from very different angles. It's great to be here, thank you, especially because it's my home. Um, My name is Aryeh Bernstein, and we're sitting in my apartment in the Hyde Park neighborhood in Chicago, and I really appreciate you bringing me on to your show and bringing your show to me. Um, I do a lot of things that I guess the overall umbrella would be kind of a a Torah teacher for the Jewish left in Chicago. So uh, the the pieces of my professional work are that I am the uh, program director for the, um, a fellowship for the Avodah organization. So I run a fellowship, a six-month fellowship, for early career um, social justice, economic justice professionals of a wide variety who are Jewish in Chicago, um, pulling people out of their silos of their individual lane of work and looking holistically and systemically at anti-poverty work and what's Jewish about it. I also am an educational consultant for the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs, a 50-year-old urban justice Jewish organization here. Um, I founded and run the Hyde Park Teen Beit Midrash, teaching Talmud on Sundays to local teenagers. 
and I run a social justice uh, Jewish study Beit Midrash program for the Mishkan spiritual community in partnership with Avodah and the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs and other periodic hustles. Not everybody who's a Jew is right. necessarily drawn to social justice action. Right. Um, and also, so you use the word silo, and um, in my experience, Judaism can be very siloed. You know, I have grown up with a number of people who want to stay sort of in an insular environment, right. therefore they don't live in certain places, right. and they don't venture beyond their borders. It seems to me like you want to do those things, and you very intentionally move back to a neighborhood that is, um, well, you know, a diverse neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I grew up here in the Hyde Park neighborhood, um, four blocks from where we're sitting right now. My parents still live in that house. I grew up in a congregate, uh, very active in the synagogue, um, going to services on Saturday mornings, and we kept kosher. So, like in the broad spectrum of American Jewish life, we were definitely on the very involved side of it. Though, if you're looking a little more narrowly, there's still a wide gap between the lifestyle I had and the most insular. Like, and I didn't go to a parochial Jewish school, and we didn't live in a, uh, a bubble where everyone was like us uh, or anything like that. So I'm always hesitant to try to pinpoint what early causes are because I can't guarantee that other people who were in the exact same setting would have been pushed the same way. I can tell you things that I that stand out to me that may or may not have had a, some causal effect. These are the things that are interesting to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think my Jewish upbringing was rigorous enough. Drifting away would have had to be a conscious choice, which many people do. Some things that really spoke to me early, like when I think about what was the core of the kind of the Torah or the Jewish education that I received. When I use the word Torah, I mean it in a sort of thin way and a thick way. Mostly I mean it in the thick way. The thin way is like, you know, scripture, you know, what Christians call the Old Testament, um, the five books of Moses. Generally when I say Torah, when I think Jews who study Torah use the word Torah, they mean it more thickly as the accrued and accruing collected and continually developing and birthing Jewish wisdom that unfolds interpretively, you know, and that we heuristically claim, whether it's disingenuous or not is an interesting question, claim <laughs> comes from the Torah speaking. So that's when I, say, when I say Torah, I'm posturing myself to say that um, being inspired, goaded, challenged by rabbinic Jewish wisdom in all sorts of forms, um, even in books that outsiders might not recognize as having that much connection with like like, the Bible. Well, the entire like Talmudic tradition, so the Talmud, which is, you know, codified 1,500 years after, um, after the Bible, and the full interpretive tradition. So, you know, a lot of people in other faith traditions might find it confusing that um, a Jew can sit and study 5th century texts on contract law and 13th century commentaries on those passages on contract law and 19th century um, judicial opinions about them. And that is a practice of, not, of people who aren't in law school. Right. It's just like 
Jews gathering, you know, in the synagogue for an hour or in somebody's home and studying those texts. And you do this consciously, intentionally with teenagers. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. um, what does a teenager, and these are, who are these teenagers? Number one, why do they come to you? Uh, and number two, why, do they, why would they care what possible connection could this have with their immediate everyday lives? Mm-hmm. And third, if you have the social justice mechanism yeah. sort of machine in the background, how, do you, how are you incorporating that? Yeah. So the kids are, you know, they're local 7th to ninth graders. Um, they're all in public or private but non-Jewish schools. A couple of them went to the local Jewish school through like 6th grade. So those two kids have like pretty strong Hebrew. The other kids, their Hebrew is like more elementary. Um, they all care about being Jewish. We live in an intellectual neighborhood, and they're kids who are going to good schools, both public and private, and they're surrounded by books and ideas. And so their continuing Jewish identity has to develop with as serious and scholastic a sense and mature a sense as everything else they're studying or else they like many people in America will just like relate to Judaism as uh, pediatric and a thing that was sort of fun when they were 11, 12, etc. or not. Um, so uh, when I'm studying Talmud with them, you know, I am somewhat selective about what our material is. So like this year, we're not doing contract law. We're doing, you know, the eighth chapter of the tractate that's about Yom Kippur. And so this is the tractate that deals with like bodily abstentions, fasting and other things that we practice on Yom Kippur. Now it's sort of about that, but it's also about bodies and like the ways in which we become embodied selves. Like you have to know how to read in order to, you know, like any other text, you can read something at a superficial level, you can read it as an adult. So I'm trying to train them how to read critically. So, for example, when the book of Leviticus says, on this day you shall afflict yourselves, so let's actually unpack that. First of all, why? What, what a motivation might be? But then how do we actually train ourselves to recognize that this is an ambiguous term and to decode it by looking at other passages in the Bible that have the same term? and see where it's used about food and where it's used about, uh, about sexual domination of somebody else's sexual life or, um, or where the people in the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, use that term. They understand the term is referring to fasting and Isaiah lambasts them saying like, is this the fast that I desire? You really think that when the Torah says, like, you know, afflict yourselves, is just talking about, like, don't eat food and you're set? Like, you guys are exploiting your workers. You're exploiting people. You're stealing from people. You think God cares about that fast? That's a really interesting passage because we read that liturgically in synagogue in the middle of Yom Kippur while we're fasting. Mm-hmm. So that even in itself is an interesting thing. So, like, on one level, yeah, we're just, like, you know, plugging in texts about our ritual behaviors, but we're not really. We're also talking about like um, what does it mean to take control over our bodies as we're transitioning from childhood into adulthood. These are all adolescents, so they're just becoming responsible, and they're in that gray area, becoming bar bat mitzvah. Uh, we've got two diabetic kids in the group, mm-hmm. so they have a different relationship to food and their bodies mm-hmm. than the other kids do. Um, 
Some of the kids are girls and some are boys. I don't, I don't think this is the case for any of them, but I bet it is for some of their friends, like, you know, encountering eating disorders. A lot of the adults surrounding them have an actually kind of juvenile, and um, I think a, a lot of the walking away from Jewish practice comes away from, as a result of receiving only a juvenile version, which works well when you're a juvenile, and then you become an adult, and your Judaism is never you're never given the opportunity to grow with it, and so then you leave it behind. Uh, as an adult, I began to see my Jewish education, for lack of a better kind of, because it's more nuanced than that, but whatever that means, in whatever venues that took place, uh, I saw that as, juvenile is a good word, um, and maybe also like deliberately ignorant of mm-hmm. certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, I, I think we may have been talking, yeah, we were talking about this the other day, about like maintenance of the status quo, and how right. important that is, and right. how... You know, certain parents are afraid. Right. Um, certain educators are afraid right. of offering you know, too much, um, and and so I stepped away because I said to myself, "This has no yeah no bearing on, right. on." And in fact, it's it's antithetical yeah. to the ways that I see the world, especially becoming con- more conscious um, about social justice issues, which I, I'm I, I say in a lot of these episodes that I am tr- like a neophyte, very much a neophyte in that yeah. regard. Like, honestly, until I was like 35, Mm -hmm. 34, 35, I didn't really see things that are, I think, to the good coming to the fore right now in terms Mm -hmm. of racial justice, in terms of gender justice, in terms of um, all all kinds of those things that are, are, the younger generation, the generation that you and I are teaching, are dealing with. um, uh, You know, in in a more immediate sense. Yeah, and I was shielded from all of that. And I mean, this is probably a, a, a hot potato, so I, I will just mention it. No, dude, I love hot potatoes. <laughs> but, but like, certainly Israel Palestine. Yeah, definitely. You, you anticipated definitely. that. Um, that one was something that nobody touched with a ten foot pole. And in fact, purely from my perspective, I would say that there was deliberate misinformation. Definitely, there. definitely. And so I have come to that, and almost entirely yeah. on my own. You know. So you know, going back to what you asked me about my my development in these things. I grew up pretty in the, in the mainstream of, of uh, American Jewish life, mainly like in institutions of Judaism's conservative movement, not exclusively, but mainly, um, and did well in them and liked it. And I'm very grateful for good people who ushered me in and didn't put barriers when I was tra- straying in other directions too. Okay. So I just want to like, I'm going to say some critical things, but I want to... Yeah, but like, because it's, it's sincere too. Um, I feel very grateful um, so, you know, just living a, Jew, a Jewish ritual life, if, you know, showing up at synagogue every week, so reading the Torah just in a cycle through, you get a sense of, like, what the major themes are in the book and things that come up in Hebrew school and in camp and sessions. The, the, the Passover Seder, there's a whole lot of emphasis on, like, we were strangers in Egypt. Right. Like, we were undocumented aliens who were very vulnerable. And, and then the Torah... Over and over and over again, 36 times throughout the Torah com- gives us either like exhortations, reminders, or specific local commandments. Do this because you were slaves to Pharaoh. 36 Egypt. is deliberate. I mean, that's the Talmud's counting, and other versions counts 46, like how you count. But like, yeah, it is a nice, it's, you know, we like the number 18. But that's, you know, you'll, you'll never see an actual listing of all of them, like, but the, the Talmud does say, like, you know, 36 times. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's, you know, about 40 times or so, sure. depending on how you count. 
the reason for that that I think I intuited as a kid was that when you experience trauma, whether it's the vulnerability and the fear of being undocumented and being, you know, starvation refugees as Jacob and his family were in the narration of Genesis, and that's why they go to Egypt totally dependent, and you see their fear as as Joseph messes with them, mm-hmm. right? And then um, and then being welcomed as you know, given immigrant status in Egypt, and then later that turning just with a quick regime change and they get plunged into slavery, and that whole story and like being redeemed and it like things turn on the turn on a dime. And I think a lot of it's easy to learn from that. We got to take care of our own and the hell with everybody else. And the Torah goes out of its way not to let us do that. Like by saying, you know, now that you're about to inherit land, enter the land of Canaan, become a landed nation with property, like, I know what you're going to do, God damn it. Like, you know, don't <laughs> oppress the undocumented or the alien, however you define the word gear, like the stranger, because you were strangers in Egypt or you were slaves to Egypt. You know better. Now, I don't know that I had the most sophisticated read. I don't know what I do now. But that was obviously like a major theme. And uh, the Holocaust was also very present in my education. So I grew up, you know, in the 80s and 90s. There were something that's very different from my adolescence and that of my students is that in my adolescence, there were a lot of Holocaust survivors in the congregation. Um, Or even those who like descended from Jews who were in the United States already at that point, they were adults and conscious like... The, the senior citizens around had a really heavy Holocaust identity, as they should, as a, you know, a major formative event. To me, I think it was sort of obvious that like, you know, the Holocaust, the way the Holocaust was taught was a kind of rebooting of like, the Egypt story. Mm-hmm. I, don't, you know, I don't mean to like, overly, um, I, think, I don't want to be overly schematic about the comparison, but in some mythic way, in some like, a narrative way, we were supposed to like hear echoes of the Holocaust and surviving the Holocaust and being redeemed when we're reading the story of the Exodus and we're having the Passover Seder. And definitely there was, you know, Holocaust stuff there. And what that meant is that Zionism was always was a part of it too. Right. And I think for good and for bad, I think there are aspects of it, you know, Zionism is complicated. There are aspects of Zionism that have always been like a liberation movement and there have from the beginning been aspects of Zionism that are colonialist. And the colonialist aspects are certainly like becoming more prominent and more dominant now in a very grotesque and, yeah, uh, and worrisome way. Opinion. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, you know, and like the 14 years I lived in Israel, living as an Israeli citizen, I was, you know, part of the far Israeli left. I moved to Israel for a version of reasons why a lot of Jewish people moved to Israel. Like there's an incredible, compelling. Uh, drive to that story and I grew up in a I grew up with pro-Israel messages that I translated to my parents chagrin and my teachers chagrin into Zionism in the sense of like wanting to move and participate in this project and not just no no but like when they would vote for candidates it's like you know are they pro-Israel or they anti you know that kind of thing but like uh, no it wasn't really radio screen but that's kind of the message that I got and also spending time in Israel there was an incredible vitality to it and living life in Hebrew it's incredibly exciting and 
Also, you know, getting a sense of the contrast, the ways in which Jews, in order to get by, have become accustomed to making fun of ourselves and, um, and feeling like we have to accommodate everybody else and let everybody else culturally appropriate us. Um, well, and like there's a lot of diaspora stuff. I've never thought stuff. about that. I've never given one iota of thought to that. And it's, it's actually very true. And you spend a little bit of time in Israel, you, it, it, the contrast does stand out. So I want to say, those are some, I was drawn to a lot of that. And, you know, just as like a, you know, 18-year-old, progressive, taking myself too seriously, sanctimonious kid, you know, identifying with Holden Caulfield, you know, kind of thing, like, you know. So, like... I didn't like hypocrisy. And so in my prayers every day, one of the blessings of the daily Amidah prayer, I was saying three times a day, like, sound the great shofar, God, you know, and gather the exiles from the four corners of the earth. And like, I wasn't mad at anybody, but it was like, for 2,000 years, we didn't have the chance to do that. We were asking God to help. And now we do have the chance. So I don't want, how can I ask God to do something if God's like, yeah, yeah, go. I was 17 with privilege, like, I could go try to live in Israel. So, you know, I went for a gap year before high school and learned a lot and let me became fluent in Hebrew and then, you know, went back after college and I was studying for a long time and yeshiva and I was going into Jewish education and I lived there for a long time. So, the, there was a version of a kind of classical Zionist narrative that got me there. But, we do a lot of collapsing of things. The following version, which, which is very prominent for a lot of people, was not prominent for me. It was not American Jews. I didn't. I didn't uh, 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 incorporate the kind of anti-Semitic tropes that a lot of Zionism incorporated, of stereotyping Jews in the diaspora as like weak. And I never valorized the militarized person. I never went there and was like, soldiers are so hot. Like you know, and like. Israeli kids are fit and Americans aren't. It's like, I didn't because my family didn't camp or hike, but there were some other kids who did. And, like, there's a lot of beautiful country in America and, like... Fetishize, like, North African Jews. Right. Or Middle Eastern Jews. Right. So I I, I appreciated the ingathering of the exiles. I really liked that. And I think when I was 17, 18, 19, 20 or whatever, I wasn't necessarily aware of all the structural racism against North African Jews in Israel and stuff like that. I wasn't aware of it. But... I don't think I was fetishizing it. I was just like, isn't it amazing that Jews are coming from everywhere and there are all these different traditions and it's not just the songs that I learned but all these different ways and that's really amazing and, and so cool. Um, so you, you didn't have that? I didn't have that fetishization. And like for me, I always related to like military duty in this sober, stoic sort of way. I never was drafted. I was like too old by the time I finally immig- did immigration status. They could have, but they didn't draft me. Um, but to the extent that I thought about what happens if they do, I never had any of this like, yeah, and like I'm gonna feel so manly I'm in my this country. Yeah, it was like I don't need to tell a state what it needs militarily. If they draft me because they need bodies, then like I guess I will do my citizenly duty. By the time I was at that point, I was already thinking, would I refuse service in the occupied territories, whatever? But even earlier, before I had that consciousness, um, I related to it as like a stoic, sober duty. And like, it was uncomfortable to me when people get too excited about it. I was never into guns. Guns are like an unfortunate 
yeah. perhaps necessity. I'm not a pacifist, like in principle. In principle, I'm now way more skeptical of police states and militaries than it was before, but I'm still not a pacifist. I read a lot of Malcolm X as a kid. Like, I'm not, you know, he's like, I'm nonviolent to those who are nonviolent with me. That's sort of what got me there. And honestly, that's what would have kept me there. Like, and I didn't leave because I was, like, disgruntled the whole thing. I, was, I came here because I was really drawn to the, fa- to the ways in which I'm part of a story on the South Side. I was writing poetry about the South Side. I was reading scholarship about the South Side, and I felt a part of it. I might be Zionist about Israel, but I'm Palestinian about the South Side, and I feel a certain chip on my shoulder, and I feel dug in and involved. With Israel, I always had a strong allergy for racism. That doesn't mean that I'm not racist, or I don't act out racism, or I don't have racism in, you know, embedded in me. I'm a person in this planet, living in society, chained in certain ways and trying my way out to freedom. Like, I'm trying to continue liberation from all sorts of pharaohs out there, including mental pharaohs. Um, And so, when I say an allergy for racism, what that means is that um, when, when seeing manifestations of racism, when I could recognize them as such, externally, that's been like a huge alarm bell for me. In Israel, a lot of people, many more than I had contact with in America, at that time, people in Israel don't feel the need to justify or hide or dress up their racism against Arabs. Like, stuff was just way out there. So for me, kind of my like default center or center-right politics on Israel, just by default coming from the community I was brought up in, that had like a very slanted education and didn't tell me stuff. Um, I kind of had certain assumptions about the Palestinians or the Arab world or whatever. And then I got to Israel. It's like, no, actually, a lot of people are, this is ours, the hell with them. All of them can, you know, they're dogs. They can, and like, so I was like, all right, that's definitely not, I don't subscribe to that. I can't. And as it became harder and harder, um, harder to justify some of the lighter polite racism and colonialist attitudes that I had been brought up with just because I was learning stuff that I didn't know. Understanding what the West Bank is, understanding who lives where and what, understanding the history, understanding, like learning the term Nakba, the, you know, the catastrophe referring to 1948, learning that in central Jerusalem, you know, right across the street from the conservative movement's beautiful center in downtown Jerusalem, where we got our mail on my, like, year program, right across the street there's this massive, fascinating Muslim cemetery with graves going as far back as, like, the 13th century or whatever, totally unmarked with signs on the outside. Now, Israel loves old stuff and history and bragging and so on, like... So just learning that when you come out of Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, you're looking out onto the kind of Givat Harnof neighborhood, which was the site of a Palestinian village that was completely razed and wiped out. And there's no sign coming out of the Holocaust Museum marking, by the way, what you're looking at with those beautiful houses is on the grounds of... So just learning stuff that I didn't know, I never had like a crisis moment of like, oh my God, everything oh I've known my. is lies. I like what... I, I'm not really built that way. I just, as I learn things... 
incorporated that and moved more and more to the left. And so by the time I was really living there, um, you know, my, I, was, I was also surrounded by, I was lucky enough to come into contact with people doing really heroic, exciting work. Like one of the co-directors of Breaking the Silence, which is, um, was my chavruta in yeshiva. We studied Talmud together. And then he wasn't the head of Breaking the Silence yet. He was a soldier at the time. Just tell people about Breaking the Breaking Silence. Breaking the Silence is an organization of former Israeli soldiers who break the silence and give testimonies, sometimes anonymously, sometimes not, depending on the safety that they feel in their life, telling things that they did, mostly banal things that they did, just painting a picture of what the occupation is. And even though in like over 10 years of testimonies now, not a single of these hundreds and hundreds of testimonies has been falsified. You know, no newspaper has a record that good. Like they have a higher standard of like journalistic verification than any newspaper does, and they haven't had to retract a single story. The general Israeli public sees them as like traitors, liars, just like seeing the way people are like, no, they're lying, it can't be. Do you spend time, any time in, in the West Bank? Yeah, I have been to places. I've been to Bethlehem and Hebron or whatever. I, and to Shechem once, Nablus. Like, I never, I never was like caught up and excited about that. I was surrounded by people in Yeshiva who were, and I always thought like, this is a bunch of crazies, you know? And like, um, not that I always felt that, like, you know, the, any Israeli presence in Judea and Samaria, a.k.a. the West Bank, is criminal. Like, I had a real evolution on that, but I never caught, got caught up in, like, settler ideology, settler kind of ideological religious Zionism, expansionist religious Zionism. That didn't ever speak to me. Um, and a lot of the people who are hawking it always struck me as bananas and sometimes just like really mean and unsavory and not Did you go the other direction where you know you sought out perhaps Palestinians or you know you maybe you came across them or things like that where you heard a different narrative? Yeah, somewhat not a whole lot because certainly once especially once you become a citizen post the Oslo Accords, mm. it's very difficult mm. for Israelis and Palestinians ever to meet. Because Which is it's a, illegal. A policy statement in and of itself. Right? Yeah. Now, there, and there's good parts and there's bad parts about it. the fact that it's illegal for Israeli citizens to go into Area A of the Palestinian Authority. Mm-hmm. In part, is out of respect and deference to Palestinian autonomy. There, you can't just go and trespass. It's a different you know, uh, jurisdiction. But there's also a management to make sure that people don't really, uh, you know, come together. Um, you know, I wasn't the most in the trenches, like, activist type person. I was sort of a backbencher who would sometimes go to demonstrations and stand more near the back. But I was, I did go to some of the demonstrations and things. Like, I was very open about that. I knew how people would interpret my move. And I wanted to be clear that, like, no, all the things that I find so scary and troubling about uh, the Israeli occupation and the increasing way in which like Israel is its occupation and that's a policy choice um, the entrenched racism um, and the way in which like Israel's soul is rotting out because of that all of those were motivating factors to stay all hands on deck every time uh, an acquaintance of mine who cared about human rights or was on the left would leave Israel I'd be very upset 
And I felt the same way when I left so Israel. Yeah, like we, we need all the help we can get. I still think that a project, the project of national Jewish you know, return to the land of Israel is a worthy and important project. The way in which we're doing it is terrible and getting worse and often grotesque. And um, I think the land will spit us out as it promises to do. I'm, I'm optimistic about what can happen. I am um, I'm very darkly pessimistic about what will happen. It, it hurts even to say the words. I think it's likely that the state of Israel will not outlive my life. And when it falls, it's going to be really ugly and terrible. In ultimate Jewish history, we are not going to say because of Palestinian nationalism, we were exiled from our land. We are going to say, because of our sins, we were exiled from our land, as we have been saying for the past 1900 years. Yeah, Titus was horrible, and Hadrian was horrible, the Romans were horrible, we hate them. And our literature is full of, like, of hatred for them. And yet we never say, you know, in our prayer, we don't say, like, because of Titus, the, the wicked, we were exiled from our land. Even though we also think that we hate him, we say, because of our sins, we were exiled from our land. And the sin of land fetishization, of greed. Resource fetishization. Yes, and of, of googly-eyed greed and ethnic hatred um, is tearing out our soul and the land will spit us out. Now, I think that there are still paths to turn around. I don't really see that there's the will on our side. And there are enough saboteurs on the other side to like, justify political violence and terrorism, you know, that comes to a head. And then the Jewish, the Jewish racists who would be terrorists if they had to be, except they, they run an army so they can call it something else, they feel justified, you know, and they're not. Now, another piece that goes along with this, yeah. where, my, where my standard Jewish upbringing was a little different from a lot of okay. uh, from people, was that I grew up urban. And, like, I grew up urban in the 80s and early 90s before mass gentrification. First of all, I mean literally in the city, <laughs> not in the suburbs. So living in Chicago. Um, not only that, but living on the south side of Chicago. And Chicago is classically the most segregated city in the, in the north. And um, just to give, to give you a picture of where we're sitting, the Hyde Park neighborhood is a little bit of a freak neighborhood in Chicago, always been um, more integrated than the rest of the city. The university has... A fraught. Fraught, right. Really? University of Chicago has been a force for amazing good and amazing destruction at the same time. Um, so um, the surrounding areas... In 19, so just a little bit south of here, there are a few neighborhoods, South Shore, Jeffrey Manor, etc., a few other neighborhoods around there. In 1962, there were 14 synagogues in, let's say, a three or four square mile area on the southeast side. In 1972, there was one. And then it, it was like 10 old guys hanging on for a long time, but basically not in the community. That's how fast it happened. My grandparents were among the smaller number who stayed. 
Um, and so there was a real sense that white flight was massive. At the time, in my childhood, I felt a lot of animosity toward these smug North Shore Jews who, who were my friends. I went to camp with them. I was in youth group with them. My parents had a lot of friends, like their childhood friends they were still close with, and they sort of made peace with it. You know, friends who like always thought it was so far to visit us, but would invite us to come visit them. That didn't seem as far to them. Nice. Right. So far, they meant don't go where the blacks are. Kind of, yeah. And and also just like part of it is like if you never go a certain direction, so it's like right. You're just not used to it. yeah, like you, south you, is not a direction we go exactly. And so I grew up with a lot of that like animosity inherited from my grandfather, and I knew that there was more of a story because it was beyond. It was beyond the sense that, like, people are racist and won't come here. It was in Hyde Park, whose Jewish community uh, did shrink somewhat after white flight, but not drastically. Like, when I grew up, there were three synagogues in the neighborhood and a JCC and the Hillel organization at the university. So there was, like, real Jewish infrastructure. And, like, you know, I came to services on Saturday morning, and there were, like, 80 to 100 people, like a totally nice, normal, what, it wasn't one of the booming right. it places of 500 people in a bar bat mitzvah every week, but it was like a totally respectable place that was not dying. It was like, you know, and there were, there were seniors and there were young people, so totally fine. Rabbi Cantor, daily services, like they were programming. And yet all my, like, nor- the North Shore people would just, they, you live where? But nobody lives there. Which is, you know, so on the one hand, that's racist. But even if they mean no Jews live there, that was just like, was patently not true. And so the, the, the contrast between the normality of our Jewish life here with the um, denial of the possibility that such a thing could even be for the rest of the Jewish community, it was both a source of great, like, study and curiosity and interest and judgment. And it was also very liberating. It was, we had a certain kind of freedom and swagger like, you know, the, the, the Federation, like, owns the rest of the Jewish community in Chicago. Chicago's a machine town, yes. and that's true of Jewish politics as sure. much as urban politics. They don't pay attention to Hyde Park so much, they don't like, as much. So, like, we were freer to do what we wanted in the South Side. What that meant is that I was aware that even as my Jewish upbringing was very mainstream in certain regards, the camp and the youth group and conservative synagogue and all that, it was really different in others. And like, I knew that my world was very different from a lot of my peers, the youth group in camp. And, uh, that was, that surrounded race and surrounded class. I mean, this is a fairly wealthy neighborhood, but it's still more economically diverse than a lot of the other places where people are coming from. And I just had like more consciousness that not everybody is like me. I didn't, we didn't talk about privilege so much in the 80s and early 90s. Right. It wasn't really in the discourse, but I was aware of something that we're now calling privilege. And not even just privilege, but also just distinction. And I was aware of, I was aware of like the world of black people. I was outside of it, obviously, because I don't inhabit a black body and never thought that I did. But even if I, was, if I was learning about, you know, police brutality, not because I had the talk or not because of something close to me, but I was learning about it from 
the Rodney King video or from NWA songs, just like a lot of other white kids were. But once I did that, I had much, I was much more likely to kind of see corroboration or see how that plays out on real human being psychology in front of my face. Um, so I need to, at this point, sort of tell, talk a little bit about my experience because there's this sort of rub-off parallel point yeah. and then there's this, uh, what I see now is like a large separation. So uh, you, you grew up in the suburbs and then you came to Hyde Park right, for college. Right. right. That's right. And so the time period that you're talking about is exactly the time, or a little before, really, yeah. almost at the same time, that, that I was taking note of what this neighborhood was and, and, yeah. and what role I played in, if any, and, and, and how these communities, because I did was part of the Jewish community tangentially, um, and the communities you're talking about, um, or just white black communities were yeah. integrated here, or weren't. When I came here, I thought I knew what a city was, but so as you have already right. explained, Hyde Park is very different from the rest yeah. of Chicago. The authority figures, whoever they might have been, you know, whether they were RAs who were kind of parroting a message from on high, right. said, here is your range of motion yeah. for living in this neighborhood. Right. Here are the places that you do not go. Right. Here are the times of day which you do not exit your right. safe haven. Right. Um, and here are people who you do not interact with no matter right. what. Right. And of course, that's impossible. Right. Um, but certainly ingrained in my mind was you, you don't go beyond... Uh, like, you know, Ellis, I suppose. Right. And you don't go beyond 47th Street. Right. You don't you go, don't beyond, go beyond the Midway, right, yeah. And that's it. And um, and those are your, that's your range of Right. You see it even on the signs on campus, the maps of, like, where things are. It's like, Certain there'll be, the, you know, the medical center and then an arrow pointing to Midway Airport. Right. And then, which is, like, many miles west. You know, in terms of professional skills... I've been in the Jewish education sector my entire professional life, and I studied in yeshiva for a bunch of years, and so both, you know, religious Jewish study and academic Jewish study, that's my skill set. So there are people doing work in community organizing that I think is, in a certain sense, more, more important than what I do, but I'm doing the most important contributions for me to do with what I have to offer. Um, I am a Torah student, Torah scholar, Torah teacher, educator. And where I've kind of, where I've been located, you know, you locate yourself where people want to put you to work and following the things that you care about and believe in. And it turns out that, you know, I think there are a lot of Jews on the Jewish left who, who are dissatisfied with the politics of the mainstream Jewish organizations, as am I. Um, I don't necessarily think they're worse than the mainstream of the rest of the society. I think they're probably even a little bit less bad. Like okay. most people aren't progressive. You know, most people aren't. Um, we've seen. Yeah, and so, um, and I think you know the Jewish federations and the, a lot of the synagogue movements are probably to the right of. American Jews writ large, and there are a lot of unaffiliated Jews who are unaffiliated for those reasons, because they just don't see these organizations as representing them. Some of those Jews are also not particularly interested in what compelling things Torah has to say to their lives. And, you know, they have a secular identity, and they're not going to be so interested in what I have to offer. Um, but a lot of those Jews do. And like they're unaffiliated or not or not practicing or minimally practicing or whatever, 
because kind of by default because there's nowhere to go that they've seen or are doing things in really creative interesting ways on the margins of things so I'm interested in like destabilizing the relationship between the center and the margins and building power I'm always interested in building power um, both money power and people power mainly people power in terms of what I can do and knowledge power for people who are trying to combat poverty and people who are trying to um, combat racism and people who are trying to manifest um, a world of dignity, of human dignity, of welcoming to strangers, of an economy that is predicated on the fact that, like, um, that it's humans who inhabit an economy and they shouldn't be exploited, like rich people should not exploit the poor for their wealth. So I'm interested in building power and contributing to power for those people. Because of my personal interest, like I think, I don't think that we tend to do our greatest work through universal humanism. I think that people need stories. And I'm Jewish, you know. I'm also a Chicagoan. I'm, I'm lots of things. So one prominent thing that I am is I'm Jewish. I'm part of the Jewish people. I'm standing in the echoes of Mount Sinai, speaking poetically. That's how the world needs me to contribute. So when I think about like Jewish particularity or even Jewish chosenness, it's not mixed in with a superiority complex. I think a lot of different peoples exist in the world. The meaning of culture is having something unique that the world needs from you. And so what the world needs from us as Jews is Torah. How does Torah combat police brutality? How does yeah. Torah combat those things? Yeah. So in terms of um, first of all, no, you know, book system combats something on its own. People do do the real work. Absolutely. But in terms of what motivates us and what we bring to the table, the the central story that we're telling, the way we're orienting in the world, is the orientation of having been poverty refugees who showed up in a foreign country because of poverty um, and being treated suspiciously as outsiders, sure. but ultimately being welcomed and given refugee status and being welcomed for a long time, such that even though later with the new regime we, became, we were plunged into slavery, we still have certain gratitude toward Egypt for the good days. So that's a very powerful story. and It's a, different, it's a little bit of a different take on... Um, you know, we're, we're right now in a moment of the worst refugee crisis in at least 60 years, globally. And I think this is a story that can help shape or contribute something to how we relate to the crisis. Like, how do we really look at this, at the, at this world? We also bring, you know, living, shining your personal light through Torah means telling the story of being a liberated slave and having the consciousness that... I don't deserve any privilege that I have. Like, I'm a hair's breadth away from continuing to be a slave to Pharaoh in Egypt today. And we say that at the, at the Seder every year. Were it not for God's kindness, God remembering a covenant, mm. that, like, at the time that we were alienated idolaters who didn't even know how to, like, speak our language anymore, but we cried out. And that, like, God is a, self-identifies as a God who listens to those cries. Mm-hmm. Now, if we are created in the image of God. We're commanded to 
to walk in God's ways, and the rabbinic tradition says, what does it mean to walk in God's ways? never says, you know, just as God judges the guilty, you have to judge the guilty, or just as God creates the universe, you have to create the universe, or any number of things that might be true about the character of God in the, in the Bible. What the rabbinic tradition says is, just as God clothes the naked, you have to clothe the naked. Just as God buries the dead, you have to bury the dead. Just as God uh, feeds the hungry, you have to feed the hungry. That's what it means to imitate God. And God manifests as a person who listens to the cries of those who are... Um, politically oppressed. So to me, that's, that's what I'm bringing to the table. Does that mean that other people without this story can't bring any consciousness? No, of course not. But all hands on deck. All different versions of the story are on deck. You know, Native Americans are going to bring a whole lot to the, to the table, and we really need to do a lot of listening to them. Um, this is what we have to offer. There's a real burgeoning of like growth and understanding, understanding how to think structurally and across ethnic or class lines. Um, part of the like terrible uprising response to this right now is because people who are embedded in privilege are scared of the changes. But like the Black Lives Matter movement has been um, a tremendous like sign of like what organized power can be about, how you use tools like social media and the internet, public publication. Um, people like you and me, or y- the younger versions of us, are so much savvier and more aware than really we were when we were young, in part because they have more access to queer and trans voices. They have more access to, to black voices. Some of them are black or trans and have power and voice yeah. in ways that people didn't yeah. before. Um, so I think that's a lot of good news, and we've to, we, ha- we, can't, we can't respond to any of this good news by sitting back. All the good news is good news that points toward goading ourselves and being goaded by the right things. Um, we have language for things we didn't have language before. Certainly, you know, being able to see the world through a queer lens, but also understanding race on a more structural, substantive way, understanding class in a substantive way. A lot was aroused during, like, the Bernie Sanders campaign. That's the problem. No no candidate for president has talked as clearly and crisply and regularly with as much success about poverty since McGovern. And and McGovern wasn't nearly as successful as Sanders in terms of, like, really building a movement behind him. I mean, I guess maybe he got the nomination. You know, maybe Sanders would have too. We don't know. But, um, and I don't even know if McGovern was talking about poverty to this degree. He was largely talking about the Vietnam War. Um, But speaking, I mean, we're going back to like the FDR days and the New Deal. And that's incredibly exciting after unions have been so hammered down, so beaten down. And our own history, speaking as Jews, we are not bound to accept the narrative. You, You know, maybe you had some some teachers who weren't as great as they should be or who got too bought out by bourgeois life. Well, you're not bound to that. That's just, they got what they got. You know how to read. <laughs> Learn about other parts of your history and, like, don't waste your time being mad at the teacher. They didn't, maybe they weren't lucky enough to learn about it either. But, like, we've got some real heroes in our both mythic and real. Um, and their shoulders are available for us to be standing on. 
And if we can insist on standing on the ground, pouting, looking up at the shoulders we don't want to stand on, of some of the, like, the more right-wing people, like that's really reckless and irresponsible. But those shoulders are there, and we have a lot of opportunity. So let's, let's use it. Um, thank you for doing this. It's my pleasure. The Jew divides. Let me see the light. I need something to live by. Help me see myself in my reflection. For a while now, I've been smugly satisfied and happily ensconced in the idea that most of my teachers in the early years, those crucial years, got it wrong. In fact, the anger I felt at the injustice of having all that misinformation heaped upon me fueled me to unburden myself of it almost entirely. I fed off this energy, which pushed me to reject much of what I'd grown up with and actively seek out alternatives. The standard pillars of a Jewish education became things to strike out against. Jewish history? Filled with omissions and misleading emphasis. Biblical interpretation? Just tendentious fear-mongering. The state of Israel? Don't get me started. The more I read on my own, as Aryeh admonishes we do, the angrier I became. But it did motivate me to keep going, keep digging for something rooted in real evidence and reason. But as Arya seems to suggest, letting go of some of that hurt and anger might also be a good thing. Maybe there's healing in Torah as well. Special thanks to the Maccabees and their booking agent, Elisheva Copland, for granting me permission to use the music you're hearing right now from the 2014 album One Day More. There's also a link to more information about the Maccabees, who are, if you've never heard of them, an a cappella group of Orthodox Jewish men from New York City. They're great, and my children are obsessed. On my website, in the entry for this episode, you'll see an image of Aryeh, and he's holding a piece of art. The piece of art is done by his cousin Chuck Yonatan Edelson, a native Chicagoan who moved to Israel in 1950. He's 88 now. The piece depicts Jacob wrestling with the angel in that famous story in the book of Genesis. Again, you can find older episodes of What We Will Abide at samshindler.com. That's S-A-M-S-C-H-I-N-D-L-E-R. And on Facebook, or just search for What We Will Abide. If you like this podcast episode, please listen to others. And if you're moved to, please write a review on iTunes. That helps newer listeners find the show. Thanks for listening. I want to see the Shine to light. Let me shed the light in each direction.